Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we are back in our study of the book of Mark, where we're looking at how Jesus invites us to live in the present with a perspective anchored in his everlasting kingdom. All right, Calvary, I want you to get ready to write something down. So if you don't have a pen or anything to write on, which uh, I could assume many of you don't, I want you to grab your phone and text this to yourself. By the way, if you pin a text message thread to yourself, you're just like me, okay? I've got the pinned, uh, it's Meredith on one little blob and then myself. So when you open up my phone, if you look at my messages, I have ongoing conversations with Meredith and myself. That's how I try to keep things straight. So I want you to send a message to yourself, all right? And this is what I want you to write or type. The main things are the plain things, okay? When it comes to reading and understanding and interpreting the Bible, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I don't always start my sermons with the point of the whole sermon, but when I do, it's because we're about to read Mark chapter 13. And when you're reading the entire chapter, all of Mark chapter 13, you need to remember that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. With that said, kids, if you're in kindergarten, first or second, and you're heading back to Kids Connect, you see Miss Jennifer in the back. She is ready for you. Kids Connect, if you're a guest with us, welcome, by the way. Kids Connect is a time for kindergarten, first, and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. Your kids are welcome to stay with you throughout the service as well, as always. So kids, we'll see you later. Everybody else, open up to Mark chapter 13 in your Bible. Get it up on your Bible app, whatever. We are going to read the entire chapter uh, this morning. And so if you would rather read along with me and the version that I use, which is the older 1984 version of the NIV, if you're in your Bible app and you choose the NIV, it's, not, it's going to be the closest, but it's not the exact same. We've got the text of the uh, 1984 version on the screen this morning. At this point in Mark's gospel, coming into uh, Mark chapter 13, we've got Jesus with his disciples. He's entered into Jerusalem in anticipation of the Passover celebration. So they're all there together, him and his disciples, and they're ready to celebrate the Passover. But as we saw last week in Mark chapter 10, Jesus knows that he's not coming just to celebrate the Passover, Right? He knows that there is more at stake, that there's more happening. He's going to be doing more this week than just going back and remembering God's past faithfulness with everybody else who's gathered. Now, that's what they're doing. They're remembering this great act of mercy from God to his people when they were slaves in Egypt. God would have been right to bring judgment on everyone because they had all sinned, right? But he doesn't. He passes over his people. Uh, so Jesus is coming not just to celebrate and look back, He's coming actually to become God's true and better Passover lamb killed, not just as a substitute for one family living in one house, but killed as a substitute for God's entire family of adopted sons and daughters. Salvation from slavery in Egypt came through the substitute of a single spotless lamb, one lamb per family. Salvation from slavery to sin and death now will come through the substitute of God's spotless 
son. That's why Jesus was in Jerusalem with his disciples. That's what he knew was coming. And when we come to Mark chapter 13, Jesus is on his way out of the temple. He's been there. He's been teaching. He's been confronting false beliefs about God and himself, teaching about God's upside down kingdom. And then on the way out the door, as they're leaving the temple, the last time that Jesus will be there to teach and he's on the way out, we hear one of his disciples make an interesting observation about the building itself, the facility itself at the very beginning of chapter 13. As we hear this observation from Jesus's disciple, we have to know that the temple in Jerusalem was was not just like an ordinary place that you would show up for worship. When the people came to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, it's not like us gathering in an old warehouse that's been converted into a church on the side of I-40 in Davie County, right? That's not the image that you should have in your mind when you think about the temple in Jerusalem. It was a lot less like Calvary West and a lot more like the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages in Europe. So when you're thinking about the temple, you should be thinking beauty, You should be thinking majesty. You should be thinking splendor, right? The the principles that undergird all great theological building and architecture would have been present there, height and light. In the same way you see in the cathedrals, you would have seen that in the temple in Jerusalem as well. So the temple was the anchor, yes, for Jewish religious worship, but it was more than that. It's also the anchor for them culturally as a society. And I think knowing that it's, it's religious observation, yes, it's also more than that. It's significant to them culturally. It's the center of life for them, right? That helps us understand the question or the observation that Jesus' disciple makes here in Mark 13 and then his response to it as well. So if you want to read along in your copy of the scripture and just translate as you go, whatever's different, that's fine, but it's going to be on the screen behind you. We're reading the whole chapter. Buckle up, stick with me. Here we go. As he was leaving, Jesus was leaving the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, reflecting on the temple and its beauty, its majesty, its wonder. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so they left the temple, they had this little conversation, and then they move on out to the Mount of Olives, kind of next door, opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? When will the stones be thrown down? They're asking him. How will we know it's coming? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. 
Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Father, as we come to your word this morning, God, we ask like we do every Sunday that you would meet with us. That you would lead us and guide us. God, by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit at work within us. God, as we're reading Jesus looking to the future, I pray, God, that we would learn to trust him with our future. And God, where that's difficult, where that's hard, where that seems impossible to do, I pray, God, that you would break through, that you would help us to trust you today. So God, be at work among us. As we hear from you, as we study your word, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you're anything like me, sometimes you read things, and then your first thought after you get done reading them is like, what did I just read? Right? What in the world did I just read? And this is one of those texts for me where I can read it and reread it and reread it again. And at the end of multiple readings, I'm still thinking to myself, Okay, what exactly is Jesus trying to communicate here? And I, I feel like I should be getting it quicker than that, but man, I, I come to this text over and over again, and as I do it each time, okay, what did I, what did I just read? And it, it's, I mean, it's 
It's different. It's just different than what we've been reading so far in Mark. Mark's gospel account has been pretty straightforward to this point. You remember when we started studying Mark back in the fall, and we said one of the words you're going to see over and over again in Mark is immediately, right? Jesus did this, and then immediately he went to this place. He taught this thing, and then immediately he left there and went to this other place. He healed this person, and then immediately he went on and had this other experience. That Mark is action-packed. He's giving us this play-by-play of Jesus's life and ministry, teaching about who Jesus is, and then all of a sudden, You come to Mark 13, and it's like, man, time just slows down. And we hear this very long, very extended, and very confusing teaching from Jesus. And I think the confusion is not just that it's it's long, it's extended. There's a lot there that doesn't quite make sense at first. But we have to recognize that this teaching from Jesus is a different genre of literature than what we've been reading so far And Mark, Mark's gospel itself is theological biography. So it's biography in that it's telling us the life story of Jesus, who he was, what he was like, what he said, what he did, where he went, right? So it's a biography, but it's written for a theological purpose. Mark isn't just telling us about Jesus. He's telling us about Jesus for a reason. And the point that he's writing to communicate is this, that Jesus is the son of God and the son of man, that he is the promised Messiah and that he is the king over God's kingdom. And so you can put your hope and trust in him. But within, right, that theological biography that Mark is writing, we've also got these sections of teaching where Jesus is communicating and they're not always the same genre as theological biography. What we've read in Mark 13 is a mashup of prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature. So prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature. And to understand then what Jesus is saying and the point of what he's trying to communicate, we have to understand at least a little bit about prophetic and apocalyptic literature. So something's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read a little bit more than that that just gives us an overview of those two types of literature. Prophetic texts typically include predictions of future events, calls to repentance, declarations of judgment against wrongdoing, and promises of restoration and redemption. Prophetic literature often addresses contemporary social, political, and religious issues, urging adherence to God's covenant and moral principles. So that's a little synopsis of prophetic literature. We see prophetic literature in both the Old and the New Testament. So you'll see this kind of writing in the Old Testament. You'll also see it different places in the New Testament as well. Apocalyptic literature. The apocalyptic genre in the Bible. Every time I say that word, I think about apocalypse now, and I cannot unsee like those images in my head. I don't know if you're like that. The apocalyptic genre in the Bible is characterized by symbolic language, vivid imagery, and a focus on eschatological themes such as the end times, divine judgment, and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. It often depicts cosmic upheaval, the arrival of a divine figure like the Son of Man, and the resolution of a cosmic conflict between good and evil. Apocalyptic literature provides hope and encouragement for believers amidst suffering and persecution, emphasizing the eventual vindication of the righteous and the establishment of God's reign on earth. Speaking of the mark of the beast, both of those overviews were written for me by ChatGPT. Okay, so just tying it all in there, 
Chad GPT, I don't know how you feel about it, but I cannot quote, uh, you know, any certain scholar on those. We put the prompt in. That's what Chad GPT gave us back. We were really like, how do you, how do you summarize, right, something like prophetic literature? It's all throughout the scripture. It's used in different times, different places, different, um, different ways even. And Chad GPT said it with about 90 to 95% less words than everything else we were reading. So we went with Chad GPT today. Uh, if you're not into that, listen, I don't know what to tell you. It's the man now. The reality is now. The future is here. So... I'm quoting Chad GPT. I don't know. We did check it against everything we had already read from actual people and scholars, and it checked out. But that confusion about what we're reading, right? What are the wars and rumors of wars? What is the abomination that causes desolation, and when will it be in the place that it's not supposed to be in? When exactly is this happening? How will we know it's all going down, right? Some of that confusion is around the content of what we just read. The content of what, what is Jesus saying? And what all does it mean, right? And is he making a specific prophecy about the destruction of the temple that they had just walked out of, right? That was the reference point for the conversation is the prophecy that he's making. Is it just about the temple in Jerusalem? Because we know that that was torn down in 70 AD, or is it a broader, a more general prophecy about the end of all things when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns in glory and power to judge the living and the dead, to reconcile all things to himself. Some of it's about the content. Some of it of the confusion is around the timing of what we just read. If it's a specific prophecy about the temple in Jerusalem, well, the temple in Jerusalem was torn down, was cast down in 70 AD when the Romans swept in and put down the rebellion in Jerusalem and began to rule there. And so we know that already happened in 70 AD. So is what Jesus is saying, is it already fulfilled? Does it still apply to us in any way today? Or was this like a split prophecy where some of it was about the temple in Jerusalem and some of it's already been fulfilled? And then some of it is about the end of all things that is yet to be fulfilled. And if it is a split prophecy, which verses relate to 70 AD and which verses relate to the end of all things, to what is yet to come? Now, here's the thing, right? These aren't easy questions to answer. And so anybody who tells you like, oh, I've got it all figured out, you just stop listening to them immediately, right? They're, they're full of it. They have no idea. Because Jesus himself said, as we read, it's not for you to know. He said it's not even for him to know that this is part of God's sovereign will, his plan from all time. And so, man, we're not going to know the specific details. Evangelical scholars who are united around their love for God, their trust in his word, their confidence in his promises, they have different opinions about these verses in Mark 13 and the corresponding chapter in Matthew chapter 24. And that's okay, right? If you've read these verses before and you've studied them before and you've come to a conclusion about them and, and then you know somebody else and they've come to a different, that's okay. Because nothing that we've just read about the end of all things is, is what we would call a tier one theological issue, right? None of it is central to the gospel, central to salvation. And so when we read about things like the end times, right, we know that these are important things. When and where and how Jesus returns, these are great things to think about and debate about, but they're terrible things to fight about or to divide about. And that's why we shared that principle for interpretation, which comes from Alistair Begg at the very beginning. The main things are the plain things, 
and the plain things are the main things. So yeah, it's good to read this. It's God's word written to us and for us. It's good to read them. It's good to think about them and dig in deeper and seek to understand as much as we possibly can. It's good to talk about it with other believers and see different opinions and where people are. It's good to debate, you know, and vigorously defend your view. But at the end of the day, right, God did not give us his word to fuel theological debate. God gave us his word to fuel our obedience. And so it's true, right? Whether you're reading and thinking about something that's totally speculative, like the age of the earth, when we studied through Genesis a couple years ago, and we talked about the age of the earth. Is it very young? Is it very old? Is it somewhere in the middle? We're going to find evangelical scholars who all are trusting Jesus to save them, and they have very different opinions about that. And that's okay. It's a great thing to debate about. It's a terrible thing to divide about. You think about questions of biblical interpretation, right? A lot of what Paul wrote to the churches, to the early church, something like, uh, should women serve as deacons in a local church? There's differences of biblical opinion and interpretation about that. Great things to debate about, right? Terrible things to divide over. If you're reading and thinking about theological uncertainty, like what we read in Mark 13, what is the abomination of desolation and what parts of the Old Testament that he's quoting and when did it happen? Right, great things to debate, terrible things to divide over. And so what I'd love for us to do is, is think about it. It's in the word, it's for us. It's meant to fuel our obedience. What I would not want to see happen is us to divide over differences of opinion on things that are not central to the gospel. And that's true here when we talk about the end times. It's true when we talk about anything, though, that's not central to the gospel. Great things to debate, terrible things to divide. God's goal is always his glory and our good. And so we know that what we read when we're reading the Bible is meant for us to have two responses, that God would be glorified and that we would be strengthened as we seek to follow Jesus. So whatever else we might learn from this, we know at least that, right? That at the end, God should be glorified and we should be strengthened as we seek to follow Jesus. So with that said, what then are the main things in Mark 13? What are the things that we should be thinking about as we read and listen to what Jesus says here without getting lost in all the weeds of interpretation and all the possible differences of opinion? I think there's three main things that Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples things that he wanted them to hear, things that Mark wanted his audience to hear, the early church, and things that now God wants us to hear as well. Three main things. First is this, no matter what, no matter what the future may hold for you, right? And reading through Mark 13, man, things could get crazy. Who knows? Whatever the future holds, no matter what, Christians can stay confident because God is sovereign. Christians can stay confident because God is is sovereign. To say that God is sovereign is to say that nothing escapes his care or control. That nothing escapes his care or his control. Nothing is outside his realm of influence and control. It's true now. It was true in the past. It will always be true in the future. God is sovereign over all things, past, present, and future. And if that's true, and I think it's really hard to read the Bible and come to a different conclusion about something like that. All throughout the scriptures, you see God creating and sustaining all things. We read from Colossians 1, Cam did, right? And it is God who is upholding all things, even right now. And you think about that, man, if God stopped upholding all things, we would all immediately cease to exist. 
And so you get this picture in the scripture that God is sovereign over all things. Nothing escapes his care. Nothing escapes his control. And if that's true, and I think it is from the scriptures, then you and I can live with confidence knowing that nothing in our lives, nothing that we will ever face, nothing that we will ever deal with, nothing that we will ever encounter is outside the care and control of God. The same God who created us, the same God who loves us, the same God who wants what's best for us and has done what's best for us in Christ, he is the one who is over everything in our lives, even the things in our lives that seem so very out of control to us. Right? You think about everything in your life that seems just out of your control, and yet you're right in the middle of it. Right? Maybe it's your marriage that seems out of control right now. Maybe it's your parenting that seems out of control right now. Maybe it's your work that seems out of control right now. Maybe you're just living in America and looking at the world and it seems very out of control right now. Nothing escapes the care and control of God. Nothing about the details and circumstances of your life will ever catch him off guard, no matter how much they catch you off guard. Nothing is outside his care and control. If he's sovereign over anything, he's sovereign over everything. And so we can trust him with everything. Jesus is telling us a story of a God who is over everything, who is in control of everything, and who's, who is orchestrating all of human history to the end he desires, where things are reconciled back to himself. So Christians can stay confident God is sovereign. Second main thing from Mark 13 is this, no matter what, no matter what's coming, no matter what we'll face, no matter how things go for good or for bad, Christians should stay focused on the eternal over the immediate. Christians should stay focused on the eternal over the immediate. Part of what Jesus is revealing here in Mark 13, all right, part of what he's communicating to his disciples is that what we see around us all the time, and man, they would have loved going to the temple. They would have loved worshiping there. They would have loved listening to Jesus and other rabbis teach there, seeing the hustle and bustle, seeing Jerusalem swell to many times its normal size during these high and holy festivals and days, right? Like it would have been awesome to be there as people, you know, got people you haven't seen for years. And, and everybody's there. It's the center of everything. And Jesus is saying everything that you can see, Everything about this life, the world and everything in it, it has a deadline. All of it, every bit of it. It has an expiration date. It will not last forever. And you think about hearing that as a Jewish person for, for whom, like, this was the center. It was the center of religious worship. It was the center of life and culture. And Jesus is saying, even that thing that you think will last forever, it will be torn down in the end. Then we think about how we build our lives. What's the center of your life, right? If you could go on a pilgrimage anywhere, where would you go? If you could have one thing that was just regular in your life all the time, what would it be? Would you go to Jerusalem? Would you go to NC State? Where would you go if you could go anywhere? I know what the answer should be. Some of you just aren't there yet. It's fine. Is your work the central organizing principle of your life? Is that the thing that gives you your meaning and your identity, your sense of significance and worthiness? Is it your work? Is it your career? Students, is it your grades or your activities? Is it the teams that you're on, whether you made it or didn't? Is it the friends that you have, whether you're in this group or that group? 
Is it the colleges that you're applying to? Are they at that level or, or this level? Grandparents in the room, is it looking back and seeing the legacy? This is what I've built with my life, and I can look back and be satisfied now because it is good. What is the thing that you organize your life around? What is the thing that it, it just seems so fixed, so permanent, so right, so good that you feel good about it? What is that thing for you? And I think Jesus would say to us, it's got an expiration date. It will not last forever. You know, Marathon are in this season of parenting where it feels like things are changing. And, you know, man, before you're married, before you're a parent, if, if you're a parent and you've got your own kids or you've seen kids grow up, your nieces and nephews or from the neighborhood, whatever, you, you probably have a sense of this. But we were talking the other day, last week maybe, and, and Mary was like, well, what car is Mason going to get when he starts to drive? Is he going to get your car? Well, she drives a van. I drive an SUV, so he probably doesn't want the van, maybe the SUV. And I was like, well, who cares? He's not going to drive for another 50 years. It doesn't matter. Like, why are we even asking, you know? This thing will be rusted out in our backyard before he ever gets a license. And she's like, hey, uh, he turns 13 in September, which means he'll be driving in two and a half years. And it's almost like you have to look in the mirror and be like, how do I have children that are that old? I am not that old. I'm not. You guys laugh. I'm not that old. I think that's how everybody feels as you go through these different phases and seasons of life. Like, man, when I was Mason's age, my parents seemed like they were a million years old, you know? And, and when I looked around and people said, oh, you know, time flies. And you're like, yeah, because you're old, you know, like you just, <laughs> and then it happens to you. And you realize, man, nothing lasts forever. No season of life, no thing that you've built, nothing that you've earned, nothing that you're working towards now will last forever. And if we spend all of our time and all of our energy caught up just in those immediate things, the things that we can see and touch and experience, the things of the here and now of this life and this world, if we spend all of our time there, we'll be missing the eternal things. We'll be missing the things that are really significant, that really last. Jason uh, Meyer, in his commentary on Mark, he makes this point, right, that if you focus only on that, only on the, uh, on the immediate students, your grades and your teams and your friends, uh, you know, uh, college students, your future career, if you're in your career, if you're retired, looking back with your family, whatever, if you focus only on those immediate things, he says you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. That's because the immediate things don't last forever. They can't last forever. They were never meant to last forever. And so they also were not meant to ground or anchor your identity, your sense of self, your sense of purpose, your sense of meaning and satisfaction. Right? You're meant to find those things in something that lasts. So Meyer says, as Christians, as people whose hope and identity aren't supposed to be anchored in the here and now and what you can see and feel and touch and experience, not in this life, but in the life of the world to come, he says, we know that the things that are most permanent and most real are the eternal things. That's a uniquely Christian perspective on life. Because everything about our life tells us the exact opposite. What really matters is what's now. It's what's here. It's what's right in front of you. 
It's everything that demands your time and attention on a daily basis, including all the good things that I've mentioned, like your career and your family and your spouse and your kids and your parents and your grandkids. All those are great things. All of those are meant to be blessings. None of those are meant to be ultimate things where we set our hope, our attention, and our affection because none of those things will last. Only God and his kingdom will last. And so I think we should hear Jesus telling us to stay focused on those things, the things that last forever. The third main thing in Mark 13 is this. No matter what, Christians need to stay alert. No matter what, Christians need to stay alert. Live like a watchman. Jesus isn't telling us to stay alert at the end there in the sense of like, you know, constantly searching the sky for signs of the apocalypse or reading the tea leaves of world events and geopolitics to figure out, you know, well, if Russia increases Ukraine, then that means this is going to happen next. And, you know, the end is, is near. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying like, be watchful in the sense that, you know, I'm coming back because I'm telling you. You can be certain that I will return in glory and in power to judge the living and the dead, to reconcile all things under the authority of God. You can have confidence in that. You can be sure of that. You could bet your life on that. When it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what's going to happen right before that happens, we don't know. We won't know. We can't know. So Jesus is not saying be alert. Be constantly searching the signs, right? Live like left behind is real life. He's not saying that. He's saying the opposite of that. He's saying don't just be looking for those things coming in the future. Be looking right now for opportunities to live on God's mission. Be looking right now for opportunities to grow in your trust and your faith and your obedience. Be looking right now to follow Jesus. Because you know, yes, it's certain one day he will return. It is uncertain when he will return and how he will return and what it will be like. But if it's certain that he's coming and it's uncertain when, then every moment, every moment is a moment to live on God's mission, knowing that at any moment God could return. And that changes the way we think about the here and now. I'm not going to wait then until tomorrow to start following Jesus. I'm not going to wait then until tomorrow to get serious about obedience. I'm not going to wait until tomorrow to live like God's calling me to live with my wife. I'm not going to wait until tomorrow to parent my kids like God is calling me to parent or to work like God's calling me to work. Because I don't know that tomorrow will come. I know that Jesus will come, but I don't know that tomorrow will come. Every moment then is a moment to live on God's mission. The time is now. This is the moment. I've heard it said it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. It is never the wrong time to do the right thing, and it is always the right thing to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. He is coming. In that sense, the end is near. How near, we're not sure. Things will not always be this easy, though. So we can stay confident, God is sovereign over all the details and circumstances of your life. Nothing escapes his care and control. We can stay focused. We can live for the eternal, even in the midst of the immediate. And we can stay alert. We can live on God's mission right now so that more people can live with God for eternity. 
We're going to look more closely at these main things over the next couple of weeks. This is week one of three, just here in Mark 13. And um, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper. But, but before we do any of that, I want us just to think, pause, reflect on a question. And the question is this, am I trusting Jesus to lead me into the future? Am I trusting Jesus to lead me into the future, whatever it holds? Jesus is talking to his disciples here about the future, and he's calling them ultimately to trust him no matter what. No matter what comes, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines and persecution and hardship and suffering, whatever comes, he says, you can trust me in the midst of it. You can trust that I'll care for you then, just like I'm caring for you now, just like I've always cared for my people in the past. So I want to just invite you, we're going to take a few minutes. I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your head, whatever is distracting you, whatever you're thinking about, and just ask God to quiet that now. And I want us just to reflect on that question. Maybe you know, man, I'm a Christian. I've been following Jesus maybe for a very long time. The question comes to you, are you trusting Jesus to lead you into your future, whatever it holds? Some of the hardships that Jesus describes are the types of hardships we see in the world around us. How they may impact us, when they may impact us, we can't know. Are you trusting Jesus to lead you into an uncertain future? Maybe you know, man, you're not a Christian. You know you're not following Jesus. You're here with family. You're here with a friend. You got an invitation to be here this morning. I'm glad you're here. And I want to ask you, what's keeping you from trusting Jesus? What's keeping you from trusting him with all the details and circumstances of right now? What's keeping you from trusting him with the future? So whether you're asking it like, am I trusting him or can I really trust him? Should I really trust him? This is what I want you to meditate on. Jesus knew what was coming for him all along. Jesus went into Jerusalem knowing what would happen. He knew that he would be put to death. He knew that death was his future. Jesus embraced that future willingly, even joyfully, so that you and I could have a different future. Jesus went to death on our behalf so that death wouldn't have the last word on us. And man, if he would do that for us, if God's love for us is that great, that it would send his own son to death in our place, death as our substitute, death as our spotless lamb, man, what can I not trust him with? I can trust him with everything now. Jesus knew that the future for him was death. He embraced that so that the future for us could be life. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we'd love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.